0: We're going to start at the end of Jonah chapter 3 and look at chapter 4 this morning. Since our missions conference is on the horizon, we're taking a step out of our normal routine today, out of the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to set our hearts and our minds on being prepared for what's to come this weekend and what God might do in us beyond this coming weekend as well. And Jonah is going to be our teacher. Uh, It is not uncommon that uh, in conversations with people about the book of Jonah, they've said this. They've said to me, I find this story hard to literally believe. And I'll say, I agree. And they'll say, this story is really unbelievable. And I'll say, I agree. And they'll say, Who could literally believe that a man was swallowed by a fish and lived in its belly three days before being put onto dry ground? And I'll say, Wait just a minute. That's not unbelievable at all. Of all the things happening in the story of Jonah, that whole great fish episode is not at all unbelievable. Here's what's unbelievable about the book of Jonah it's God's grace to a sinful man. That's what is almost, almost unbelievable. That fish, that's no big thing. For a God who creates out of nothing and parts the waters and calms the storm and raises the dead, that's nothing. But God's grace to sinful man is amazing over and over again, and nothing less than that. The story of Jonah is uh, a story about God molding and shaping His servant. It's about God changing a man's heart, changing his affections. It's not a story about a big fish. It's a story about a sad man and a gracious God. Just for the sake of recap, here's what happens in the story of Jonah. It's only four chapters long, a short, easy story to read. Uh, it's one of my favorite books in the Old Testament. It's a brilliant piece of literature. It's amazing the lessons we learn from such a short piece of Scripture. But in chapter 1, Jonah, God's prophet, that means he's God's spokesman to uh, God's people, Jonah gets a call from the Lord. God says, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh and warn them of an impending judgment. And rather than go to the city of Nineveh, Jonah goes in exactly the opposite direction. He gets on a boat, and he sails for this far-off place called Tarshish. And God, in his kindness to Jonah, sends a great storm. And the storm almost sinks the boat, and everyone, thinks they're about, everyone on the boat thinks they're about to die. And Jonah says, if you'll throw me in the water, the storm will stop. So the sailors do that. They throw Jonah into the water. Jonah enters the sea. And then Jonah enters the fish. And the storm stops. Chapter 2, Jonah is inside the belly of the great fish. And he prays this amazing prayer. Incredible in the depth of its theology. Incredible in what it reveals about God and proclaims about God. From the belly of this fish, Jonah... uh, Talks about the faithful love of God, and, and then he makes this statement that salvation comes from the Lord. Chapter 3, Jonah exits the fish, and he enters Nineveh. And there in Nineveh, he preaches the word of the Lord. This is his message. It's pretty simple. He says, 40 days, and Nineveh will be overturned. He comes with a message of judgment. And the people of Nineveh, surprisingly, are terrified at this news. And the whole city turns to God, even the king. The God of faithful love, the God of salvation, does exactly those things Jonah praised him for in the belly of the fish. He relents from his judgment on Nineveh. And then comes chapter 4. And in chapter 4, we find out for sure how deeply disturbed Jonah is. Jonah is a man with a rotten heart. Throughout, we've seen that he's reluctant to obey God. He would rather put others at risk of death, whether on the sea or within the scope of God's wrath, rather than obey. Jonah's obedience of God is clouded by selfishness and hate. Jonah is a really messed up prophet. He's got issues. And when we read Jonah... The person you and I identify with first and foremost is Jonah. It happens so often in the lives of God's people that we have a Jonah heart inside of us. That may manifest itself in so many different ways, but the key indicator that you and I have a heart like Jonah, a heart that needs help and healing and changing, is the motivations behind our obedience to God's will. Why do we do what God tells us to do if we do it? That's what we're going to focus on this morning is this issue of motivation. Why do we obey the Lord? And when it comes time to obey the Lord, it is vital that you and I obey the Lord from our hearts out of affections that love Him and love His Word and love to obey. And we struggle with this over and over. And guess what? God's not even calling us to Nineveh. All He's asking us to do is to be stewards of our finances, to raise our kids to know and love the Lord, to keep our vows to our spouses, to forgive, to show mercy, to pray, to trust. He's not asking us to do these huge, grand, incredible things. He's just asking us to do the smallest of things. And even there, you and I struggle with simple obedience, and especially obedience from hearts that love the Lord with affections for Him. If we're going to obey the Lord, if we're going to serve Him, if we're going to do missions in hard places, which is the theme for our upcoming missions conference, then we first have to till up the hard soil of our hearts. It's not enough for us to merely obey. We have to obey out of love and affection for the Lord. So my goal today is to motivate you to do the will of God from your heart. And what I mean by that is, is that we have to be motivated to obey God because we love God. Not just because He gave a cold command, but because we love Him, we love His Word, and we delight to obey Him. So for us to love the Lord this way, we have to first confront some of our own problems. And I want to show you in Jonah chapter 4, three characteristics of disobedient missionaries. It's a little negative at first, but our, our target today is grace and hope, so hang with me. Jonah Chapter 3, verse 10 is where I'm going to start reading. I want you to follow along with me from verse 10 all the way to the end of the book. When God saw that they, that's the people of Nineveh, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, He had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction He had threatened. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? This is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are gracious and a compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O oh Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Have you any right be angry, Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his comfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the vine so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you have a right to be angry about the vine? I do, he said. I'm angry enough to die. But the Lord said, you've been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? It is a fascinating piece of Scripture and one that illuminates our hearts and the incredible compassion of our God. Let me show you in Jonah chapter 4 Three characteristics of disobedient missionaries. If you're taking notes, the first characteristic is this. Disobedient missionaries have twisted hearts. Disobedient missionaries have twisted hearts. We have a heart issue that we have to get at. And the verses that highlight this for us are from chapter 3, verse 10, to chapter 4, verse 4. Chapter 3, verse 10 is such a great verse. When God saw what Nineveh did, how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion, didn't bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. There's been a lot of debate uh, throughout years of scholarship about what exactly happens in Nineveh. What does it mean that they turned from their evil ways? Uh, Are we saying that they became covenant followers of God? That doesn't seem to be the case here. Uh, History tells us that Nineveh does not continue on in a long relationship with Yahweh. They do not become covenant members of the community of of faith, um, but rather they undergo in this moment some temporary social reform. You and I would use the common word saved to describe what seems to happen here. I don't know that I'm fully comfortable with that word, but at the very least, there's this moment of repentance, this moment of turning, a moment of trusting. I don't know what all happens there, but it's incredible what happens in the hearts of the people in Nineveh. And then it's amazing what God does in response to that. You see, saying that this is just mere social reform isn't to downplay what happens among the Ninevites, but rather to highlight the mercy and the grace of God even for social reform in this instance. It shows us a picture of the heart of God that He doesn't desire to bring calamity and disaster, but rather if people will turn, He will give them mercy and He'll give them grace. Uh, So here's an incredible picture of God's heart, but Jonah isn't having it. Verse 1, Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. Why? Well, Nineveh is a city in a nation called Assyria. And Assyria has been a longtime enemy of God's people Israel. Assyria has attacked God's people repeatedly. Has, they've killed many people. Uh, Assyrians are bloodthirsty, vicious, and evil. It's a terrorist nation that neighbors Israel. So Jonah's hatred of them is understandable, but it still isn't permissible. Verse 2 is shocking, the things that Jonah says to God. Look at what he says. Jonah prayed to the Lord. Oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? You see, when this story opens, we're not told why Jonah flees to begin with. We don't understand why he took off away from Nineveh until we get to this point in chapter 4. And he begins to reveal his motives. This is why I left. This is why I disobeyed. This is why I ran for godless Tarshish rather than going to godless Nineveh. Why? Because... I knew that you are gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Jonah's furious because of God's compassion to Nineveh. We have to remember, Jonah doesn't go to Nineveh as a missionary. He goes to Nineveh as a harbinger of doom. He is a herald with the judge's verdict in hand. God has found you guilty. Judgment is coming. You've got 40 days, and then it's over. That's Jonah's message. There's there's not a message of hope or grace or if you will turn, then God will relent. It's just judgment. That's Jonah's role. It's a role he fits into nicely because Jonah hates the Ninevites. He does not want them to turn. He wants them to fry. This is a bigger issue than you and I might realize upon first reading the book of Jonah. So I want you to imagine with me that we are a committee of people and we are interviewing Jonah to be a missionary supported by our church. If someone wants to be a missionary supported by South Shore Baptist, they fill out a long application, they go through a pretty extensive interview process so let's imagine we are the committee interviewing Jonah this morning he's submitted an application he would like for us to join him and support him in his missionary endeavors so we would ask some questions of Jonah we would start by saying Jonah are you called by God are you called by God to this mission's work and he would say absolutely twice the word of the Lord came to me I've been called by God, not just once, but twice. It's clear what my calling is. And we'd be satisfied. We'd say, Jonah, do do you have an evangelical theology? Jonah would say, absolutely, I do. Salvation is of the Lord, he says in chapter 2. It's not a... A merited work. Salvation doesn't come from my efforts. Salvation comes from God to people who don't deserve it. That's good. We'd want to know about his spiritual life. We'd say, Jonah, are you a man of prayer? And he would say, oh yeah. I've prayed in some strange places. And when I pray, God answers. He moves I've prayed, and, and, and God kicks into action immediately, I believe wholeheartedly in prayer. That's good, Jonah. Now, Jonah, we believe that faith comes by hearing, and hearing comes from the Word of God. Jonah, do you believe in preaching the Word of God? And he would say, absolutely, I do. God gives me the words, and I preach the script verbatim. Forty days and Nineveh shall be overturned. I say only what God tells me to say. I don't add commentary. I don't add color. I just speak the Word of God. And guess what? I have results. Hundreds of thousands of people have turned to God because of my preaching of the Word. And we would say, wow, we are so lucky to be interviewing this man. But Jonah, do you know the Word of God? you preach the Word of God? It's one thing to preach it. It's another thing to know it, to have it inside you. Jonah would say, well, absolutely. When I pray, I don't just pray my own words. I pray the words of Joel. I pray the Psalms. I pray the book of Exodus. The Word of God is in me, and it comes out in all these different ways. And we would say, Jonah, how do you feel about doing missions in hard places? And Jonah would say, I've taken the Word of the Lord to an unreached people group. I've had unprecedented success among these people. And we would be in awe of this candidate. Lucky that he's come to us, ready to sign the check and to begin the support and to talk about him to our church. And then someone, one last person, would ask this final question. They would say, Jonah, your work in Nineveh has just been so amazing. You must really love the people of Nineveh. And he would say, I hate them, (laughs) and I wanted them to burn. Jonah obeyed the Lord eventually, but he did it with a twisted heart. He did it like the teenager. You say, go clean your room, and they go clean their room, stomping and slamming doors and pitching a fit the whole way. That's how Jonah behaves. Only worse, he wants people destroyed. He doesn't get credit for having all of these credentials. He doesn't get credit for the results that come from his ministry. God is concerned with the heart of the man whose affections do not mirror the heart of God. Jonah hates the wrong things and loves the wrong things. His heart is entirely and completely twisted. And now he curses God for sparing Nineveh? We learn from Jonah that we don't get credit for obedience with empty hearts. I'm so encouraged at the way our church gives to missions. I'm so grateful for the resources that God continuously continuously provides through our congregation so that we can support missionaries around the world both here at home in Boston Metro and on the opposite sides of planet Earth. But listen, South Shore Baptist Church, the story of Jonah is a warning to us. We could have the best missions conference ever this coming weekend. We could commit the most money we've ever committed to missions work through our church, We could expand the number of missionaries we support to an unprecedented amount, and still we could be utter failures in the eyes of God. Because writing a check does not automatically mean we love the lost. Do we obey God from our hearts? Do we love what He loves? Loving the lost is easy in theory, but it's difficult in practice. Our selfishness, our apathy, our laziness, our racism, our fear, these are all impediments to loving people the way God does. So our missions conference is not just a pep rally for funding, it's an opportunity for us to examine our hearts in light of Jonah's mistakes, that we would be people who obey because we have Hearts like God. We love what God loves. We delight to do His will. Disobedient missionaries like Jonah, they've got some twisted hearts. But God calls us to love the way He does. Let me share with you a second characteristic of disobedient missionaries. Second characteristic, if you're taking notes, is this disobedient missionaries have wrong priorities. Wrong priorities priorities in verses 5 through 8 so after Jonah's initial complaints to God he goes outside the city of Nineveh verse 5 tells us he went up on this hill and he waited to see what would happen to it Jonah has voiced his complaint to God but there's still a part of him that's hoping maybe God changes his mind and and just sends maybe even a little fire and brimstone We get a little bit of judgment on Nineveh today. He goes outside the city to see what happens. And then this whole strange episode with the vine and the worm happens. What's going on here? Well, in general, what's happening with this vine, it's an object lesson for Jonah. Just like we studied last week in Mark chapter 11 and that fig tree. You remember that part of the story? Jesus cursed the fig tree. Well, Jesus used that fig tree as an object lesson for his disciples. The fig tree was an object lesson about God's coming judgment on sin. Jonah's vine is an object lesson about God's compassion on sinners. He's trying to teach Jonah something. You can tell that God orchestrates this whole scene because three different times we're told God provided. In verse 6, God provided the vine. In verse 7, He provides the worm. In verse 8, He provides that scorching east wind. God appointed this lesson for Jonah. It might be worth noting that sometimes God and His sovereignty will make us miserable in order that we would grow in our holiness. Sometimes. Look at what happens in verse 6. The Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. That's a notable line. Jonah's happy about the vine. It's the only time in the whole story that we're told Jonah is happy. At no point is he happy. Now he prays thanksgiving from the belly of the great fish. But we're never told he's happy except for this one episode here with the vine. His delight is in the vine, but his happiness is short-lived. The worm ate the vine. The vine died. The sun rose. The wind blew. Nineveh was untouched, and Jonah wanted to die. What can you say about a prophet that's happy about a vine but hates people? Jonah doesn't value what the Lord values. Jonah doesn't have the priorities that God has. The Lord values the rescue of Nineveh, but Jonah values shade. God grieves the destruction of Nineveh. Jonah grieves the loss of a plant. Jonah doesn't have the Lord's values. Loves the wrong things. Hates the wrong things. Jonah's a far cry from the Apostle Paul who in Romans chapter 9 said, I wish I could lay down my life for my lost brethren. Jonah doesn't want to lay down his life for the lost. He wants to see their lives taken from them. Like Jonah, you and I may erroneously put value on vine-like things that are not worthy of our value, not worthy of our priorities. We do it all the time. We value things that are temporal. Remember, the vine died after one day. We value things that are not ours. God caused the vine to raise up and then caused it uh, to die. So if we were to audit our lives, what evidence would we find that our priorities align with God's priorities? Does God's mission get your time your thoughts, your words, your energy, your money. In what ways are you participating in God's work to see the gospel go to the lost and go to the nations? Who is hearing the gospel because of you? Whose eternity is being changed because of you? We're so easily swayed by other pursuits so attracted to vines case in point the mega millions jackpot is to 1.6 billion dollars and tuesday night a whole nation of vine lovers will be watching these stupid numbers on a side note can we all agree that lotteries of all kinds are a blight on our national character they victimize poor people they are total garbage. They are not worth any amount of investment, not even something as little as $2. Christian, I'd give you this encouragement. Put your $2 in a card and give it to a missionary instead. You don't have to agree, but I know I'm right. <laughs> don't let this world and its vines capture your heart, Christian. They're not worth it. Churches also are easily prone to vine fancies. Churches often substitute the mission of God for other types of endeavors of our own making. More often than not, churches cease being lighthouses of hope, lighthouses of the gospel, and instead we become preservationists, like we're a museum and we have to keep the old ways, maintain the way things have always been. And in so doing, our mission subtly shifts so that we go to propping up the institution rather than propagating the gospel. They're not the same thing. And when that happens, churches begin to fight inwardly about just the silliest of things. One example from my distant past was a decision our church had to make one time, other church had to make one time. Uh, It was time to replace the carpet. It had been in the sanctuary since the mid-80s. It had lived a good life, had a good run. It had gone from being blue to coffee-stained brown (laughs) over many, many years. And we had the money, and it was time, but the church had to vote on the expenditure. And one gentleman, a saint whom I love very much, but in the moment we disagreed with each other, he stood and he said, my Bible says my God doesn't change, so I don't know why our carpet has to change. (laughs) An adult said that. Look, friend, if, if you're using the immutability of God to justify hanging on to your shag, we might need to talk after church today. But look, churches will fight over the silliest things when we lose sight of God's mission and we begin to live for the vine. Our priorities don't match His priorities in that way. Uh, there's a professor who's recently deceased, uh, someone in our tribe, someone that it's good that he's on our team or we're on his team. His name is Francis DeBose, a name that you probably never heard of. He lived a pretty small life. His influence was not as huge as other writers. But in the early 80s, he did groundbreaking work on churches being missional. He coined the phrase, it's a phrase we use all the time now in church life without giving credit to Francis And uh, Dr. DeBose was a a professor at a seminary in California and then lived his life uh, training churches and doing ministry in urban areas. He himself gave his life for ministry in uh, metro San Francisco. I want you to hear what he wrote as he described uh, the early church and its singular focus on God's mission. DeBose wrote this He said, Because the church was free and a flexible community, it was unencumbered by the captivity of institutional paraphernalia. The first decay set in when the church became a custodian of things rather than a communicator of God's message. The early church was not a building on the corner, but a dynamic, redemptive people. That's who we still are today if we follow God, if we have His priorities. If we love what He loves, we're that kind of people. Not a church on a corner, though we are a church on a corner, Be a dynamic, redemptive people, operating in the power of God, seeing lives change through the gospel. There's no such thing as an unmissionary church. God sees to that. And there's no such thing as an unmissionary Christian. That's true. God has called us to live this way, filled us to live this way. We must be these types of people. Disobedient missionaries, they've got a twisted heart. We've got messed up priorities. Here's the good news. Third and finally, Disobedient missionaries receive God's grace. Disobedient missionaries receive God's grace in verses 9 through 11. After the experience of the vine, God makes his point with Jonah. Jonah's done all the talking up to now. Now God's going to speak. God says to Jonah, do you have a right to be angry about the vine? Jonah says, I do. I'm angry enough to die. Jonah multiple times wishes for death. When he doesn't get calamity on Nineveh, he wants calamity on himself. Verse 10, But the Lord said, You've been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight, died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who can't tell their right hand from their left. Many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? What's God telling Jonah in this moment? Well, there's several things God's telling him, more than we have time to dive into. One, if Jonah can care about a vine that he wasn't responsible for in any way, then God must be allowed to care for Nineveh, a people made in his own image. Another lesson, if God is concerned about Nineveh, even though Nineveh is Israel's enemy, then Jonah should be concerned about Nineveh too. He should have the same compassion as God. And God's instruction to Jonah here teaches you and I something really important that God is more concerned about the worker than He is about the work. If you and I were writing the story, there wouldn't be a chapter 4. We'd get to chapter 3, and we'd see Nineveh's turn to the Lord, and we'd say, the end. Jonah was successful. God relented. That's the end of the story. But we've got this chapter 4. And why? What's the purpose? The purpose is to show you and I that God is ultimately concerned with our hearts. The story of Jonah is not the story of a great fish, and it's not the story of Nineveh. It's the story of God shaping a man's heart, shaping his servant's heart. From start to finish, this book is swimming in the grace of God to Jonah. In chapter one, the storm that God sends is not punishment, it is grace that turns Jonah around. Chapter two, that fish is not punishment. It's a salvation submarine that rescues Jonah. That's his own testimony. In chapter 3, Jonah gets the grace of God's again call on his life. God called him once. He disobeyed. Chapter 3, God calls him again. He goes to Nineveh and gets an audience, and he gets the grace, the blessing of obedience. And in chapter 4, he gets the grace of this conversation with God. And he is petulant, and he is accusatory, and he is defiant in his sin. And in chapter 4, God is gentle and quiet and close to his hurting servant. Jonah deserved to be drowned in the storm, or digested by the fish, or killed by the Ninevites, or to die of exposure in the sun and the wind on that hillside. But God loved Jonah. Jonah. God's grace to Nineveh is incredible. God's grace to Jonah is equally as unbelievable when you think of how defiant he's been throughout. And so the story closes with this rhetorical question. God says, should I not be concerned about that great city? Well, if we were writing chapter 4 and we were writing verse 12, we would write, Jonah said, yes, Lord, now go with me back to Nineveh as I teach them how to walk in your ways and to love you. That's how you and I might finish the story. But there is no verse 12. There never has been. The story was written this way, ends at verse 11. Why? Because we're supposed to write verse 12. Not with pen and paper, but with our lives. We're to take the lessons of Jonah and apply them to our lives, that our hearts would be shaped like the Lord's, that our priorities would mirror his, and that we would move in the grace of God to obey Him with glad hearts. God's grace to Jonah is also given to you. And God invites us to come His way. God didn't give up on Jonah. And He didn't give up on Peter the denier. And He didn't give up on the glory-seeking brothers James and John. And He didn't give up on the persecutor of the church, Paul. And God doesn't give up on you either. He invites you to turn change those priorities, to change that heart, to obey with gladness. So that's the story of Jonah. It forces us to confront brokenness in ourselves. It's a mirror that in one part makes us flinch, but then in another, it gives us such hope and confidence in this God of grace. So this story ought to fill us with hope, ought to fill us with joy, to know that the way God loves Jonah and the way God loves Nineveh is the way God loves us as well. Listen, God wants your heart. When you get down to it, doing the will of God is not a matter of knowing the will of God in your mind. It's a matter of loving it in your heart. Ephesians 6.6 Ephesians 6 tells us this explicitly that we must do the will of God from our heart. So if you're faced with something the Lord has given you to do and you can't do it from your heart, then you need to hit your face before the Lord and not get up until your affections have changed. To pray something like this, Lord, I love this thing you've called me to and I love you for this thing you've called me to. That's the prayer of an obedient missionary, of a Christian who has a heart like God's, of one who's following after him. Remember when Jesus restored Peter at the end of John's Gospel? What question did Jesus ask Peter? He didn't ask him, Peter, do you know my will? He said, Peter, do you love me? He loves you. And his love for you is vast, unmeasured, and boundless. He loved you all the way to the cross. Will you love him all the way to the nations? Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for our teacher, Jonah. And thank you for you, our Savior. You've shown such grace to us this morning through your Word, and we're grateful for it. Lord, it may be true that our brand of disobedience may not reflect perfectly Jonah's. We may not be as brazen. We not, may not be as defiant, as openly defiant. But nevertheless our hearts have to be shaped more like yours. And so, Holy Spirit, bring conviction this morning. Press into those places where repentance is necessary. That we would love and we would prioritize and we would obey with gladness in our hearts. I pray for my friends in here that don't know you as their Savior. This morning we've talked a lot about what's required of believers. Lord, how amazing is it that Your love and Your grace have been shown to us in ways that Jonah never knew. We've seen You come to us in the person of Jesus, and we've seen You die on the cross, and we've seen the empty tomb and the promise of new life when we trust in, believe in, rely on You. So would you draw friends to you this morning? Would you awaken faith in us that we would be your people through and through? Thank you for loving us like Nineveh. Thank you for loving those of us who are like Jonah. Thank you, God of grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.